Now I'm pleased to uh, introduce tonight's moderator. Jerry Sullivan founded the, the he, he wears a hat. Could you put, put your hat on for a Sure. <laughs> just, that's Jerry Sullivan. I do, I try and take it off. In the <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to take there it off go. now. Yeah. I just wanted you to know the full glory okay. of Jerry <laughs> Sullivan. Uh, Jerry Sullivan founded the Los Angeles Garment and Citizen in 2000, launching a, uh, it's a community newspaper in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. Uh, the Garment and Citizen has grown to be a tabloid with circulation of 10,000 throughout downtown and surrounding districts. It's a very cool little paper. Uh, he's an award-winning journalist and covered local government, government, sports, general business, and the advertising industry while working as a reporter for the Inglewood News, the Inland Valley Daily Bulletin, and Adweek Magazine. He went on to become managing editor of the Orange County Business Journal, and he has served as the editor of World Trade Magazine, California Apparel News, and Pacific Tech Textile News. The Garment and Citizen earned uh, recognition as the best news source for downtown Los Angeles in the 2006 Best of LA edition of the LA Weekly. As always, we're very um, happy to welcome Jerry Sullivan. Thank you very much, Gregory, and I'm happy to welcome our <clears throat> panelists for the evening, and I, I think I'll start on the, the far left, my far left, your far right, and I'd like to introduce T.A. Frank. T.A. is a California-based fellow at the New America Foundation, where he writes about law, criminal justice, and labor. Uh, he takes a particular interest in developments in California's labor, mar labor market as the state continues to move towards a post-industrial economy. T.A. has written for The New Republic, The American Prospect, The Weekly Standard, The Christian Science Monitor, and The Washington Monthly, where he is an editor. Before becoming a journalist, he worked in Los Angeles in the field of corporate social responsibility, visiting and monitoring factories in California and around the world to assess their labor conditions. And in the 1990s, he tells us he played bass for a rock band called Jonathan Fire Eater. And he's always quite happy to meet uh, the odd soul who has heard of that. <laughs> Next is Joe Rodriguez. Joe is the executive director of the Garment Contractors Association of Southern California. It's the longest serving trade organization for companies engaged in the production of clothing in the region. Joe has been in his current position for nearly 20 years. Prior to that, he worked in human resources for a company called Tobias Kotzen, which was a major uh, garment manufacturer in town here. And for any of you who remember the disco era, Tobias Kotzen was also the maker of the Angel's Flight pants that were all the rage back then. They were bigger than John Travolta in the 70s. Uh, Joe's a, a native of Ecuador, came to the U.S. as a child with his parents, grew up in New York City where he graduated from Columbia University before moving to Los Angeles. And to my immediate left is uh, Miguel Morales. Miguel's a lead organizer for the Garment Workers Center. It's a nonprofit uh, advocacy group that uh, looks out for the interests of garment workers. They're based right here in the downtown area, right down on Los Angeles Street. Miguel's a native of Oaxaca, Mexico. He grew up experiencing two worlds, U.S. and Mexico. And he says those cross-border experiences have led him to become what he describes as a passionate advocate for the working class and immigrant people. Miguel's other passions include graphic art and photography. And he says that both his advocacy work and his art are dedicated to fighting for a just world where everyone has the opportunity for true self-expression and to reach their full humanity. So please welcome our panelists. We thank them very much.
And, and I, I do really mean to express sincere thanks because this is a, a difficult subject. And uh, I'd like to especially thank Joe. Uh, there's no, it's, it's no uh, great secret that the garment industry in Los Angeles has a, a very large representation uh, on the ownership level uh, in the Korean American community. And we really would have liked to have had uh, a representative of the Korean American community here and not, just couldn't do it. Nobody was gonna, was gonna come and talk about this. And uh, you know, that's often the case when uh, we turn to these sorts of discussions in this particular industry. I wouldn't take that as an admission of guilt in any way. It's just, it's a very difficult subject and uh, for a lot of reasons, people on the, the ownership level or the business side of the, the question often feel like they just, uh, really can't help themselves at all in a discussion like this. There's uh, problems of perception. There's obviously some problems of reality also. Uh, at any rate, they're not here. Joe is, and I know it's, it's, uh, it's not the easiest conversation to have. And so thanks uh, to Joe and to our other panelists. And so, you know, let's, let's get started with a, a look at what we know about the garment industry here because a lot of what we're going to talk about today is what we don't know. Uh, an underground industry or an underground component of an industry, an underground economy is by definition unknown. It's very tough to measure and that becomes the, the big challenge. What we know, according to the state of California, is there's about 50,000 jobs directly tied to garment manufacturing in, in Los Angeles County right now. Um, and you can dispute the figures here and there, but I think that's a good rough estimate. We know that there's probably a couple tens of thousands of jobs related to that, whether it's through sales or transportation or logistics or various other uh, allied industries. Uh, so that's what we know. We, we're trying to get a grip on what we don't know. And so, you know, I'd like to just start by asking Miguel, who's with the Garment Workers Center, is really their mission is to, to really find this out. Would you give us your overview and as, as regards the comparison to what we'll call the legitimate above ground operators and the underground? Mm -hmm. um, so basically, um, our organization uh, works on a daily basis uh, interacting with uh, the people who uh, directly manufacture um, your clothing. Uh, we work with garment workers who um, are facing in Los Angeles specifically a situation where uh, the majority uh, of the employment they're able to find um, is in conditions of uh, substandard uh, uh, labor conditions, sorry. Um, we very often uh, see uh, violations in terms of wages, um, rarely do we see overtime being paid, and um, in the most cases we see people really just uh, overworking themselves for a meager existence. Um, um, you know, it's hard when um, uh, this idea of measuring or uh, quantifying uh, the underground economy, but the reality is that uh, the great majority of uh, workers in the garment industry, be it working for um, unregistered um, employer or a registered employer face similar conditions. Um, and that is generally what we uh, see in our interaction with workers, that this is the reality that they are living. 
Joe, maybe you could uh, just talk us, to us a little bit about, and just to give you a little background, the Garment Contracts Association, um, I don't think can claim a record of per perfection, but I do believe it's, it's accurate to say they enjoy uh, the best reputation of the, of the uh, garment production community. Uh, Joe, would you give us a little idea about what is a good shop, what is a legitimate shop, and how it compares to what we might call the underground? Well, perhaps, Jerry, I can tell you what I think is not a good shop, and maybe we can kind of take it from there. In my opinion, a, a shop that is illegal, to use that much-used phrase, uh, sweatshop, is one that where major labor law violations exist, and the major ones in my opinion, are not paying minimum wage, not paying overtime, not providing workers' compensation insurance, employing child labor, having just terrible safety violations. Those are the bad shops. The ones that are complying much with that, with those uh, standards, those are good shops. And when we talk about the size of the industry, do you have any guess, and I know this is, it's difficult to, to gauge, any guess what percentage is legitimate and, and versus? That's always the big question. It's anybody's guess. I don't think anybody can quantify that accurately. We all have an opinion, I'm sure. Miguel has an opinion. TA probably has an opinion. I don't know. I do know that we have uh, quite a number of very legitimate operations that employ people as best as possible under the all, all compliance with the law with the labor laws. Uh, in our organization, we invite people who are of that type. We don't invite people who are the sweatshops. That's not to say that it's not possible for a sweatshop to join our organization, but generally they shy away from it. We have, for example, a website where we list the members on our website for the sake, for the benefit of manufacturers and designers who need contractors. And they go to our website to look for uh, um, contractors. So uh, I just don't know how many are bad. I can tell you that um, there has to be a number, but um, I won't hazard a guess. With that, I'd like to ask uh, T.A. his thoughts on that. Uh, T.A. has some experience of, of going around and, and actually checking. Uh, I'd like you to describe, if you could, the process you went through when you were monitoring these factories, T.A. Sure. And then, uh, if you could, just kind of give us your thoughts on and on where you see this industry in terms of its likely size and its likely future. Right. Uh, well, I, I worked for a company here uh, in Los Angeles that was in the field of uh, corporate social uh, responsibility, CSR, or compliance consulting, or, or has various names. And basically, it was a private company that was hired by uh, big labels to go and inspect the shops here in LA and tell them if they were going to get in trouble with 60 Minutes or the DOL or any other place. Uh, so we would be their early warning signal. 
Uh, so I would visit a lot of shops here in LA. Actually, it was an international company, so we also uh, visited all over the world, and uh, it gave a, a baseline for comparison. Uh, and uh, we did, even with uh, registered shops, find a lot of wage and hour violations here in, in Los Angeles. Health and safety violations, uh, fewer. Um, uh, there, there were some, but uh, wage and hour, quite a number. Uh, I, I think we don't obviously know how many unregistered shops there are. I, I tend to think that there probably are, are not that many because they're not so easy to hide. Uh, th there was, of course, the South El Monte incident that most people have heard of, where there were slave laborers kept in a, in a nondescript house in South El Monte. Uh, I think that sort of thing is rare. Um, but there are a lot of people who uh, quickly uh, turn around an, an order and then shut down the shop and open up a new place, and they're very hard to track. Uh, I also think that uh, we do know that I in 2000, I think this is the last time the Department of Labor uh, evaluated this, but the, in Washington, uh, the DOL uh, estimated that about 50% of the shops in, of the garment manufacturers in Southern California were out of compliance with uh, wage and hour laws. So we do have some sense of of at least the overground shops with uh, underground behavior. Um, uh, but a as to the overall trend of this industry, I, I do think that this is an industry that is frankly on its way out. Uh, and, and in some ways that's sad because there's uh, a lot of character and personality uh, to having a, uh, a garment district in, in Los Angeles. But it is, it is not really an industry that's uh, sustainable. Uh, and, and in fact, it was on its way out 40 years ago. And, and uh, through uh, some good luck, basically, for the industry, it managed to pull, pull through. Uh, but I don't think uh, it's, it's likely to even stay at its present numbers. It's probably about, going to be about a quarter of its size uh, before too long. And you know, there's an, I, I want to clarify something for our, our audience. Um, when we talk about a registered shop and a non-registered shop, and there's all kinds of different ways uh, to be in violation. Uh, every garment manufacturer is supposed to be uh, registered with the state of California. Is it the state of California? Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you could be not registered with the state of California and and be in perfect compliance with all the other labor standards. I think it's probably a fair uh, estimate to say that if you're not registered, it, it might be, uh, you probably would be less likely to be in compliance with everything. But there's, there's various levels of this, of compliance. One, and the first one is to be registered. Now, you know, another, I, th I think an overwhelming problem in all of this, and one of the reasons we don't know what we don't know about this industry is there's thousands of garment shops in Los Angeles County, and, and I think they might might have three or four state inspectors. Um, so I you know I don't know that the state's really making any sort of legitimate uh, effort to really really get a handle on the universe of this industry. Uh, they do seem to go out and do occasional raids. Uh, they appear to me, quite frankly, to be showcase raids. Occasionally, when they need to show that they've that they're doing something, they go out and and hit a number of shops. I think more of the cases uh, probably, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Miguel, but are probably coming from workers reporting a, uh, an abuse or an allegation of uh, wage violation to organizations like the Garment Workers Center or, or others 
um, I would imagine that probably produces more information than anything the state goes out and does on their own. Would you agree with that, Miguel? Um, I, I, I do agree with you. We find that um, we have very, um, very little, uh, very limited support by uh, the state in terms of actually enforcing uh, labor laws. Um, their staff is very, uh, very uh, small. Um, and with the uh, current um, budget uh, uh, situation of the state, we find that work has basically come to a standstill. Um, we, we see that in order for this industry to actually become uh, an industry that is uh, um, uh, something that it's not right now, which is you know a, a fair employer, um, needs to be uh, work done um, uh, by both employers um, and the state in terms of enforcing these laws, and that is something that at present is not occurring. It is up to workers themselves, um, to their advocates, to go out there and pressure employers, to go out there and fight for their wages. Um, you know, something that we feel um, is also the responsibility of the state, but it's not just there. It's not there. And another thing that's always struck me that this brings up is it seems to me, and I, I think statistically it bears out, that uh, the companies that actually attempt to comply and register as garment manufacturers, they get punished for it because the state is very short-staffed and not really making a sincere attempt. And when they do have to go out and put on a show, I think they tend to grab a list of registered contractors and go out and look for violations. Um, Joe, is there, uh, I mean, do, do you feel, do you ever feel that uh, a legitimate operator, not only do they get punished by unfair market competition, a legitimate operator is hurt by an illegitimate operator who's undercutting him on price because he doesn't pay as much in wages. But do you feel there's a, a regulatory penalty for trying to be a responsible company? I always did feel that way, and uh, I've complained about it for many years. Uh, I've been assured that that's not the case, but I have just accumulated a number of examples, incidents that were just kind of difficult to to ascribe to just coincidence. But uh, you know, we've had the history of uh, many of times when these sweeps start occurring, these investigations uh, that uh, invariably people would knock on the doors of some of my members, and uh, not because. I'm trying to brag or anything, but my members are among, in the industry, they're known as the churchgoers, the guys that, you know, really do comply, that uh, that don't cause any problems, but yet they were always uh, visited, and um, uh, luckily, and, you know, the, the uh, violations were not found, but still they were always victimized, if you will, by these investigations, and it's always been the case, by the way, in my opinion, that if you spend enough time in any workplace, and I'm talking about any workplace, including a Fortune 500 company, you can find labor violations if you really look. But I'm talking about the really egregious violations, which we talked about before, the minimum wage, the workers' compensation, the overtime, et cetera. Those have no, weren't found at our shops, but yet we were investigated. and. Uh, and we always wondered why, you know. 
Now, there are, obviously, it's not an easy situation to read, uh, and we can't know everything about it. There are reasons for all this, and, and I think it would uh, behoove us to discuss some of the reasons. Um, there's factors such as available labor, external competition, internal competition. There are cultural factors. And I want to, T.A., would you like to give it an overview of what you see as the, the factors behind this? Uh, sure. Uh, this, it certainly gets into uh, contentious territory, this kind of thing, because it, it touches on things like globalization and immigration, and all of these topics are, are, are things that uh, evoke strong feelings. Um, but I, I personally think, uh, from the research I've done into it, that uh, the link between the influx of labor that happened in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s, both legal and illegal, uh, is a major part of, of uh, why this industry was able to, to survive. And uh, when I know I was coming here, I pulled out of the archives an, an article from 1968 from the LA Times uh, uh, with the headline, Garment Industry Calls for Help, But Few Apply. Uh, now, this was uh, just after uh, a major overhaul of immigration law had happened, but uh, the influx was yet to start. Uh, and and the uh, garment manufacturers were complaining uh, and trying to make the case to, uh, at this time it was young women who were supposed to want to do this, uh, says one, making dresses and blouses is much more fun than standing on your feet all day long selling clothes in some department store, uh, she said. Um, it's hard to imagine someone in the garment industry making that kind of pitch today. Um, and. Uh, and someone else, we're just not attracting young people to the industry. We're still suffering from the old sweatshop image we had in the 1930s. Um, and th this was at a time when the industry was uh, still a, lo a lot of unionization in it, um, but it was basically uh, uh, dying out. Um, now, five years later, uh, and this was uh, once, once there started to be a lot of inflow of, of, of immigration, that's when you start seeing uh, uh, reports of sweatshops. Uh, and by 1973, here's an LA Times editorial, an ugly exploitation of workers. Uh, and uh, it said it was perpetuated by some. So there's concern. And by 1979, you got the headline, uh, Back to the Sweatshops, uh, and uh, an estimate of uh, about 100,000 garment workers uh, in the industry of uh, it's estimated that 75% or more are in this country illegally. So I think that definitely had both the effect of pushing down wages that would otherwise have either gone up or the jobs would have been eliminated, uh, also breathed life into the industry and gave it uh, uh, a, you know, it was a revenue boon for California. Um, there are obviously costs associated with it too, but I think that has to be considered a major factor in, in why the industry was able to, to uh, thrive. Yeah, and it's interesting, and it breathed new life into the industry in one way. I think it also uh, inhibited the industry uh, from perhaps uh, uh, keeping up with technology in some ways. It's difficult in the garment industry to invest a lot in technology because it's such a tenuous industry, and, and you may invest in a lot of machinery for a certain contract that could go away just like that, and so it's a difficult uh, decision to make. Now. The other thing that has happened more recently, starting a little more than 10 years ago, is the global trade. And that's had an enormous effect. And first NAFTA, and then of course the WTO deal that opened the door to a lot of imports from China. Joe, 
what, what has that done in terms of pressures on the marketplace, pressures on uh, manufacturers? That's been a major, major factor in influencing the industry. And I would just say, Jerry, that it's probably more, many more than 10 years ago that these pressures really began. You're talking about NAFTA. That was really in the mid-'90s that, that that passed. But even before NAFTA, I'm a victim of losing a great job with a great company because of imports, and that happened back in 1988, and I was with that company for many years, and we just couldn't compete with the imports. of. Uh, we were making men's pants at the time, and at that time, uh, competitors were making them offshore in other countries, uh, and we just couldn't compete. So it, that's been happening with each major new treaty that passed beginning with NAFTA, and you name some of them, that was just more nails in the coffin, really, that uh, impacted this industry. It's been uh, tremendously difficult, and that's probably one of the main reasons why we couldn't really invest in technology, because the work was just so uncertain to be had for any length of time. Uh, we uh, just wound up competing in the Southern California area, really, for what's high fashion, what's, you know, you need, because you need it now, you need it, you need to make it in a week or so, uh, you, but not something that you could invest time and money in as far as having a certain predictability that you would, you know, be able to produce. So uh, that these have been um, probably the greatest single shaper of this industry is the market caused by the offshore, the, the abandoning of making clothes in this country and making clothes in other countries. As you know, I think I've told you, at the end of World War II, we in the United States made 95% of the clothes we wore as Americans. Today, we probably make about less than 3% of the clothes that we wear. So you can just see the, the way it has worked out, and that's one of the, if not, it is, in my opinion, the, the number one influence on the industry. Yeah, it's amazing. I was, I was at lunch with a friend the other day, and he brought me a, uh, he's a big sports fan, and he had a copy of the sports page when the White Sox won the pennant in 1959, and we're both from Chicago, and he wanted to show it to me. And on the back side of it was an ad for hats. It was a very nice hat, and to priced at 12 or 15 dollars and it just so happens his wife is a very high-ranking finance person with a great deal of acumen and actuarial skills and she did the math real quickly on what that hat would have cost in today's dollars and it, it reminds you it's never been cheaper to buy clothes in the United States it's I mean it was an amazing an amazing the price of this hat in real dollars is actually about a third of what it was in 1959. The, now what all this does is if you decide to stay in and manufacture clothes here in Los Angeles and you decide you're going to try and do it right, then you have to either find a higher-end product that can't be easily made in uh, an overseas factory or a fashionable product where the demand is such that it has to be produced quickly to get to the store shelves or you can try and circumvent the, some of the costs. And uh, so a lot of this falls in that area. 
Uh, so you don't pay the proper wages or you don't pay workers' compensation and you cut costs here and there. And there is that aspect of this industry. Miguel, could you tell us what is a typical complaint <clears throat> that comes in to your office? Uh, most of the complaints we see are in terms of wages. Um, we see that the majority of uh, uh, garment workers are living off of anywhere from 4 to $6 an hour. Um, this is uh, their gross pay. Um, this isn't necessarily after any deductions. This is what they get paid. Um, you know, and, and that's what we primarily see. We um, also um, know that there are other hidden dangers that uh, workers typically don't complain about. Um, this is mainly um, health and safety violations. Uh, we generally don't hear about them because um, the conditions in the industry are so bad that, um, and so widespread that they are seen as the norm. Um, and workers, when they're encountering them, don't see them as being um, uh, a violation of any sort because the other two factories that worked that were this, exactly the same. Um, so those, th that's another um, key problem we see in the industry. Um, we also um, know that there is a lot of long-term damage that isn't uh, accounted for. Um, the work of sewing is, uh, requires very uh, repetitive motions. Um, imagine somebody working 10-hour uh, day seven days a week doing the same motion without breaks, only 30 minute, 20 minute lunch break, um, working this for 10, 15 years. Um, you do see in the um, elder workers um, a lot of problems in terms of carpal tunnel syndrome, back pains, shoulder pains. Um, and workers don't necessarily tie these pains to their uh, <coughs> workplace. They generally think of them as you know a consequence of their age. But we um, we know that you know these these problems do come from the work that they are um, uh, undertaking on a daily basis. So even though we mainly hear about um, wage violations, the uh, um, the problems workers face go beyond that, uh, even to those that they don't necessarily voice out. So you know it's interesting. We're talking about an interesting industry. It obviously employs a lot of people. Um, it's, it adds a lot to the city in a lot of ways. Uh, T.A. mentioned a, a little while back that uh, it, it, this industry probably is, is headed for history. And the one thing I always notice is that doesn't really upset people too much. It, it's a very, uh, there's, there's mixed feelings about this industry. I think there's some folks who would just reject it out of hand, other folks who obviously love it. But you could say to a crowd like this, you know, it probably won't have any uh, fashion industry or garment industry here in 15 years, and it doesn't really cause a ripple. The uh, T.A., what do you think is the future of the industry here? Uh, well, I think it's, it's going to be uh, maybe an industry of 10 to 20,000 people making high-end, quick turnaround things, uh, basically. Paying legal wages, ideally, that would be the ideal future uh, of the industry. Um, that's my sense of it, at least. And, and trends are already in that direction. It, it is shrinking every year. Uh, and uh, it's, it's never nice to see a business go out of business, even if it's a bad business, uh, I, I, at least in my opinion. But uh, uh, I mean, obviously with exceptions. But, um, but I think that is the trend.
does this industry lay the base for anything to follow it? Is there any uh, skill that goes from this industry to the next? Is it a case of complete retraining? Is there any entrepreneurial drive to capture? Boy, I mean, apart from apart from the high end, uh, I, I can't think of it offhand. It's a good question. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> Joe, have your members who have gone out, has there been any trend of what they go into? When the employees are laid off, you mean? When, yeah, when, they, when they close their business. When they close yeah. the business, yeah. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's actually one of the great mysteries of what happens. Uh, well, f you know, first of all, um, uh, we, we go with statistics as to, you know, how much is, uh, what's the unemployment rate in the county, what's the unemployment rate in the country, and you hear the government say a figure, four percent, five percent, maybe six percent. Um, I, I always think that that's so undercounted because you know we we don't know really if you happen to be uh, the only people that are counted are the people that are drawing unemployment insurance benefits. Once you stop drawing an unemployment insurance benefit, uh, you you disappear as far as the government is concerned. Uh, and uh, what um, uh, the, the numbers of, of uh, what, what happens to the people who lose their jobs, uh, it's, it's always been a mystery to me because it becomes increasingly more difficult to hire sewing machine operators. Today, as you know, there's a famous company in the Los Angeles scene that's trying to hire desperately sewing machine operators. They're putting ads in the paper. They are uh, advertising in Spanish language television, which is very expensive, and they still can't hire sewing machine operators. Uh, the Once these people get laid off, they seem to disappear. They, uh, they don't seem to surface somewhere else and um, that's actually kind of a, a bad thing in another way, if you look at it from your point of view, that, uh, uh, you know, we do have provided, as an industry, jobs to a number of people who probably won't find it easy to find employment in other industries. And some people call them hardcore unemployables. Um, so it's uh, it's just, uh, and even though uh, I happen to agree with you, Jerry, that, well, maybe you didn't say this, but I think once you've worked in a garment factory, you do acquire many skills that could be transferable, and yet um, that doesn't seem to happen to the extent that it should. But you have to understand that it's not just the domestic apparel manufacturing industry that may become extinct in this area or in this country. It's the whole manufacturing industry in this country. We have forsaken it. I think that's a great tragedy because, you know, we forget that this country was made great by the middle class, and the middle class is what where the manufacturing industry provided jobs to. And uh, we don't have that anymore. And the garment industry is just uh, one more example of, if, you know, if you lose your job in the garment industry, there aren't that many more manufacturing jobs. Miguel, what's a typical, if, if you could uh, give a rough estimate, a typical profile of a person who comes to see the Garment Worker Center, foreign-born, trained, 
in their homeland or trained here for the garment industry? Uh, we see both. Uh, majority uh, are immigrants, Asian and Latino immigrants. Um, very skilled workers at what they do. Um, you know, some of them learning, uh, learned uh, the skill in their country. Um, as uh, was said before, after uh, NAFTA comes in, a lot of these um, uh, companies, you know, um, look for manufacturing um, elsewhere, and hence the same workers that worked in El Salvador or Guatemala end up in LA working for basically the same companies, but now here in the States. Um, um, going back to this question of um, where is this, um, you know, industry, um, go, where does it go after it disappears in LA, I think, is a very interesting well, do question. Do you believe it will disappear um, first? Uh, we see it um, shrinking. Yes, yeah. we do. And um, we see um, immigrants coming from Central um, America and Mexico, you know, um, witnessing, you know, companies moving in that direction. And that's where I want get, to get at, you know. Um, we might think, you know, this industry disappears from LA, but it doesn't disappear. Um, workers will continue to work for substandard conditions, manufacturing clothing, um, and we find that the industry is, is, is healthy, maybe not on its lower end contractors and workers, but definitely in the higher ends of the industry that um, uh, from what we um, find in um, the studies we've, we've seen uh, reap uh, very huge profits off of uh, the uh, clothing that the workers manufacture for sense of peace. So, um, you know, be it here in LA or be it in Guatemala or El Salvador, um, the workers that we interact with on a daily basis are gonna continue making the same clothing. And um, in that way, we don't see the industry disappearing at all. We see the problem continuing, unless, you know, consumers really take a, 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 a critical look into where their uh, garments are coming from. And you're talking about the, the broad industry on a global basis. Yes. But you see it disappearing from Los Angeles. We see it shrinking in LA, yes, definitely. Let me ask them, is it, is it worth saving for Los Angeles? The way it is right now, with the wages people are receiving, no, it's not worth it. Um, it's definitely not worth it fighting for something that you know just eats up your life and at the end leaves you with nothing. No. So you wouldn't recommend any drastic steps to uh, aid the industry or boost uh, enforcement or get to it. aid the industry in terms of who's profiteering off of it no to aid the industry in terms of workers receiving adequate working conditions yes but on the way out in other words on the way out you don't really see the industry staying so try and make it as legitimate as possible on the way out i mean we we want it to be uh, legitimate tomorrow you know even if it dies out uh, the day after right. that, you know, we want workers to be receiving what they should reserve, receive, you know, uh, regardless of how long that employment's going to last. T.A., do you think there's anything worth saving here, or should the, the nature just run its course, or the business cycle run its course, or? I, I think, uh, I do think there is, is, is plenty worth saving, and I think uh, a lot will be saved. Uh, I think also, you know, uh, you can question whether the speed with which we've knocked down all our walls against global trade uh, has been a good thing. Um, and I've become, uh, I used to be pretty gung-ho on free trade, but I've become more and more of a skeptic uh, because I see all these people losing out to it. Uh, and clearly uh, the pressure on manufacturers here to drive down wages in order to be competitive and remain competitive 
is, uh, is, is eroding working conditions in the industry, and which makes it in turn less worth saving. But in its present state, no, most of it should probably, uh, should probably go. I mean, I, I don't think it benefits a community to have substandard jobs, substandard wages, illegal, under the table payments, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, given what we have, it's probably uh, mostly not worth saving. Well, I think um, if your premise is correct that most people are not paid legitimately their wages and yours, uh, then I would agree. But I, I take uh, an exception, of course, to that. I think that many, many are paid. And um, I, if you've been around shops and you've been around, well, maybe you don't go into shops, but you see the, the employees come and make complaints to you. But I've been around many shops, and uh, I've been around many shops when they're closing, and there is an awful lot of grief. There's just a lot of consternation. Uh, these people, it is, you know, one thing to be, we, 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 people in this room, for example, we can take a paternalistic attitude and say, this is no good for you, this is bad, and you shouldn't work here, you should work somewhere else. But when you're at that job, and that's what you do, and that's what you know how to do, you have a legitimate job, and you want that job preserved. And I think there's an awful lot of that in the industry that just goes unnoticed. These people, if you went, I dare bet you that if you went to the, these people uh, who are employed in the industry and you offered them a chance of closing down the shop or not closing down the shop, uh, there'd be no question that they would vote to keep the jobs that they have. Uh, you have an opinion about how many are paid substandard or illegal wages. This figure that Miguel threw out of four or five dollars an hour I find kind of difficult to believe, but if that is the case, that is a legitimate problem. But uh, if you're making the eight dollars an hour that the state prescribes as a minimum wage, and if you are not, uh, and if you have coverage as far as workers' compensation, for example, and if you're paid overtime correctly, and if you have uh, no other serious abuses taking place in your workplace, then that is a job worth keeping, in my opinion. And I think most of the 40,000, 50,000 people working in this industry would agree with me. Great. Thank you very much to all our panelists. that this is being uh, recorded for podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone, and please state your name before your question. Also, at this time, our uh, donation buckets will be going around, so we do appreciate any and all support. We have questions? Question up front. My name is Sheila Troiano, and I'm an instructor at FITM, and I'm worried about my job now. Um, <laughs> but I used to be a compliance inspector. I have a comment that I wanted to make. Uh, what happened was the Department of Labor put the onus on the manufacturers, not on the, the sewers specifically. So the manufacturers were the ones that were going to be liable for back wages or any kind of violations. And when they did that, they just said to the sewing contractors, well, we're not going to hire you unless you're in compliance. And so that was our job, right? We went out and made sure. And if they weren't in compliance, they wouldn't work for those manufacturers. So I don't know how, what the efforts are now, but that seemed to help a lot. Uh, 
I'll, I'll take that if, if that's okay. Uh, I think it did help quite a bit, and I think a lot of, of contractors here in Los Angeles felt quite a bit of pressure to comply. I think the, that, uh, that what still happened was that there were some shops that went even farther underground, and there were some shops that used tricks of subcontracting to subcontractors or some contractors, so that uh, some of the less legitimate practices stayed around. But it, it did have uh, a major effect, uh, at least according to uh, people uh, that I've spoken to. Uh, it improved it quite a bit. And, uh, and California is also unique for um, a provision called, I believe it's AB 633, which holds manufacturers, uh, that is, you know, these labels liable for uh, the wages that their contractors uh, fail to pay. Uh, and that's obviously... Uh, obviously a great incentive to get them in compliance uh, with the law. Question up front here. Hello, my name is Rodrigo Valles. I am a professor of Chicano Studies, and I have a question that how can we as consumers, what actions can we take not only to keep the garment industry alive, but to improve the conditions of the workers? Um, I'll take a stab at that. Um, that's a that's a very difficult question. Um, I think you know not just in terms of uh, garments, in terms of general overall as consumers in this country, how can we make sure that our products um, are uh, manufactured um, uh, by workers who are receiving adequate pay um, and um, are working under safe conditions? Um, I, I mean, it, it generally just boils down to really being aware of what you're buying, where you're buying. And you know, um, when you're at the mall and you're shopping for a shirt that's nine dollars a, uh, you know, nine dollars, you know, you really gotta ask yourself, you know, how much is the person making this garment getting paid for it to be nine dollars? Um, and um, however, you know, even um, high-end uh, pieces end up getting made at um, sweatshops, as we've seen. Um, but it just takes a lot of, um, of um, education in terms of uh, the um, consumer. It takes a lot of work and effort if you really want to be conscious about this to, um, um, you know, hit up places like our organization or other uh, that might be in your area that are uh, really um, um, seeing this industry from the worker's point of view um, and ask these kinds of questions. Um, you can definitely visit our webpage. Um, and get some information there or just give us a call at the office and we can definitely provide some more information for you. But I can understand how it can be very frustrating. My partner always um, asks me this when we, you know, go shopping. I'm like, where am I going to buy, you know? You tell me you've been to that place, that place, you know, where am I going to buy? Um, and it's just very difficult. Um, and like I said, again, not just in terms of the garments we buy, but overall um, the cheap um, uh products that we have available to us come at a very high price to workers in this country and, and elsewhere. So we just got to be very critical about where we choose to buy and, um, you know, do a little bit of homework. Well, Miguel, I think what you, you have to remember is that consumers are notorious for, on the one hand, wanting good practices and good labor standards, and on the other hand, buying and wanting the cheapest possible garment that they can find there at stores and that's part of the problem if you if you could ever educate consumers which you can't then it would be an entirely different industry but did uh, you just say we can't we can't 
I think I like to think that we you are educate um, a lot more uh, educated and willing to, you know, I be right. be, um, be aware of these situations I, and take care of you in, know the people around us. In the greater numbers, it just hasn't worked throughout history. That's why they manufacture offshore. Yeah, I think uh, one of the efforts that you would have to make is. <clears throat> Not so much try and educate all the consumers, but find the ones that could make a difference. So obviously, young women who buy more clothes than anybody else, maybe start to really start to to zero in on certain segments of the population. You know, Joe and I, if you teach us all about that, we just don't buy that so many clothes. You know, we just we're just we're not that big a part of the market, and we do it's the same white shirts or, or whatever. So I, I think, you, you know, people have started ideaing those segments of the marketplace that could make a change. And fortunately, you know, probably the biggest consumers are younger and they're a little more, uh, I would say, open to these sorts of approaches and everything else. I'm glad you raised the question and I obviously don't have all the answers because, you know, I, I know there's a lot of problems in the industry. I'd like to, obviously, it should only exist as a fully legitimate industry. Um, I would hate to see it go in any case because there's something to manufacturing that that's, does a little more for a community than a lot of other jobs. And there's a lot of pride that goes into manufacturing. And, you know, my mother-in-law was a sewer in uh, the Philippines and in Hawaii. And the day that she got to go to sewing school, and she came from modern, certain, modest circumstances, the day that she got to go to a sewing school was a big deal for her. It was her ticket. And and she made a full career of it, and she was not the wealthiest woman in the world, but she did okay. And, uh, you know, and her kids dressed a little better, and there was a lot of pride about that. And I think you, you see that in, in, in areas of Los Angeles today, and I, I would just hate to lose that. It's a, it's a chunk of our city that I would hate to just, just see go without even a fight. We have a question yeah. over here. If I could just uh, jump in, uh, Jim McQuillan, the TA, I uh, also say that I would be sad to see the, the industry disappear. And, and I, I think that in general, there's a, a problem that we, we, we are a bit conflicted as consumers versus uh, as producers. And as producers, we all want to be paid a lot. And as consumers, we don't want to pay a lot. And unfortunately, the debate that we have about it uh, becomes uh, just battle lines. And, oh, you're just being protectionist. And, oh, you're... Uh, you know, you're just an, uh, a crazy, crazy free marketeer, and um, really, uh, we ought to be able to do a little better than that, uh, and that would go a long way. And I also say that Robert Reich's efforts in the 1990s really did do a lot to, uh, to help clean up the industry, and, and it was very clever because it was by applying a modest amount of very severe pressure in certain areas of the industry, you could get it to self-police. Uh, and that would actually have a pretty good effect on, on what remains of the business. Hi, uh, my name is Rolinda Baker, and I'm a retired public health community organizer. And I would like to know, uh, let me phrase it differently. I am very confused by people who would rather get rid of jobs than improve an industry. I think a Made in the USA campaign, perhaps similar to the Grow California or California Grown campaign to raise public awareness, as well as uh, self-policing and community policing of conditions would be a much better approach than getting rid of jobs. Um, 
We've seen that the United States produces very little progressively, and I would hate to see more in that direction. Uh, let me just say quickly, I, just, I want to defend our panelists here. I, I don't think any of uh, the panelists said they would like to push this industry out the door. I think some of them gave a fairly realistic view based on conditions as we see them today that it's not a, a real rosy picture for the continued uh, presence of the industry. Uh, again, though, I, I do appreciate your thoughts that, that there's something worth defending here and something worth keeping. We have a question to your far right. Hi, my name's Atara, and I was, my question's concerned with the mindset of the workers. I was wondering why we're not seeing um, an uprising in, in, you know, is it because they're not knowledgeable of their rights, or is it because fear of losing an income or a cultural thing? I was wondering why we're not seeing that. Um. There's several factors into why we don't see uh, a massive um, outcry uh, by the workers. Definitely, fear is is um, is a large factor. Uh, fear of losing your job, even you know if it's meager wages that you're making, it's something as opposed to nothing. Um, there is definitely um, also some uh, something in terms of intimidation by employers um, that uh, plays a part into this. Um, and you know a lot of this idea of you know just fighting for one's own uh, ability to move up uh, in society also keeps workers to some extent from from organizing. But there are several factors that keep workers from doing it. But know that even without voicing it collectively, workers are very much unhappy with their conditions, and it's not a situation where people uh, willingly um, choose to. Um, be employed um, under these conditions. I think also, actually, I, I, I think there is uh, also right now a new trend now that immigration enforcement uh, is up so much that actually has a very bad effect on workers. Uh, and, and you've seen cases where, uh, now this has happened a lot in meat processing plants around the country, where fledgling organization unionization campaigns have been effectively busted up by uh, immigration enforcement raiding the factory, um, and uh, and this means that workers are even less likely to go and complain to the authorities about uh, improper wages. So that has a very uh, unfortunate effect. We have a question up front here. Okay, thanks. Um, my name is uh, Sasha Costanza Chuck, and I'm a PhD student at the Annenberg School for Communication, and uh, just actually at, here at USC. In the interest of disclosure, I've been volunteering a little bit of time. Uh, at the Garment Worker Center helping teach an audio production workshop there. But I guess I just really wanted to echo uh, what some other people have said before here around, um, you know, there was a comment here that uh, consumers can't be educated or will only buy the cheapest. I really don't think that's true. I think that's kind of a failure of imagination. We've seen very, very effective uh, campaigns recently in a growing, for example, organic food industry or fair trade food industry. Um, I think there's sort of two pieces. One is to really look internationally. You know, we've got to figure out how to organize a campaign that's not only about buy U.S., but buy fair labor. But also, I, I think that there's an entire multi-billion dollar industry, which is, quote unquote, educating consumers, right, which is the advertising industry, um, which is constantly just telling people to just buy, buy, buy based on desire and sex appeal, et cetera. I don't, I, I think that it would be amazing if, say, the Garment Contractors Association would try and think strategically and creatively about this 
and figure out, well, how can you figure out how to really build, uh, you know, put resources and money and energy into campaigning around uh, fair work condition clothing. There's sweat-free label that already exists. There's already, you know, you yourself were saying that you try and have a roster of shops that are fair. So the question is, can't we really actually think about trying to build that kind of pressure and that kind of campaign and not just uh, throw up our hands and, and uh, that's the question. I'd like to think you were right, and I hope you are, but uh, I just, I'm a skeptic. Uh, I've seen it in the past that we've had companies that have tried to specialize, that have tried to identify themselves as being true and as being good, as being, in some cases, unionized, and in other, other cases just, uh, you know, sworn to just uphold everything that's right and those companies have by and large failed because the customers, the consumers throughout just don't care. And yeah, you could say you could educate and we could try, but how much can you spend? I mean, you don't have much, many resources to begin with and you would just be, I think, um, fighting a losing game. I hope I'm wrong. I would love to see that you're right. It would be in my self-interest, in our industry self-interest to see that you're right. But I'm just a skeptic. I, I think consumers in general just, uh, when they go shopping, they want to get the best possible bargain they can get. And that's it. And, and let me let me just add quickly, uh, you could look at American Apparel, which is a, a huge company here in town, makes everything here has a lot of social responsibility aspects to its uh, production and has, has done very well. They also have a very keen fashion sense, a very aggressive, so it's not, that's not their, the only part of their story. And, and certainly there's, there's a lot more to that. The other thing I would uh, caution you about is comparing too directly between food and clothing because there's some, some real immediate health benefits to food, organic food that that really uh, present themselves to a consumer in a much different way than, than clothing might. So not that you directly compared them, but I wouldn't directly uh, expect the ease of sale in those two uh, segments. I think this gentleman has a question. Gentlemen, question to your, uh, to your left. Uh, by the way, this will be the last question of the night. You will have an opportunity for additional questions at our reception. Please join us. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Stu Silverstein, I used to write about this industry back in the 90s. At that time, there was a so-called good guy list that was set up by the uh, Federal Labor Department. It's my understanding that it faded, but is anyone today trying to do anything similar? Is there, in other words, is there any reputable organization that has sort of listed uh, manufacturers, clothing manufacturers, that are doing a, a, a good job in terms of how they treat workers and, and related issues? And, Maybe, maybe along with the, retail, uh, the manufacturers, retailers as well. In other words, um, maybe, maybe the skepticism that's been raised here is legitimate, but say we want to be good consumers. Is there any website we can turn to? Is there any resource we can turn to to try to do something? No, Stu, I don't think there is. I think I do remember uh, this list, and uh, it was very short-lived. Uh, I, I just, it, it wasn't helpful enough to the labels, to the manufacturers, to try to participate and become part of that list. And um, again, it just comes back to the marketing, the, the consumer, and uh, uh, they just fought, thought they were fighting a losing battle. And a lot of it became, you know, well, how are you going to 
try to judge a garment, whether it's made in another country, in another factory, another set of standards, uh, how do you judge that? But to try to make it in the United States, uh, that became just a losing proposition to the manufacturers, the labels, the owners of the labels. I wish that was not the case. I would love to see a list like that resuscitated and then paid attention to. That's the other part of it. I just, you know, have the consumers actually want to seek that out, that information out, and buy those products. I would love to see that, but I don't think that exists. Do you know awesome. No. Unfortunately, there isn't uh, a list like that. Um, there are certain um, mainly union-made uh, um, clothing that is available, uh, but in um, the uh, mainstream of um, uh, garment manufacturing, there isn't such a list that we know. Uh, a lot of companies, if you go onto their websites and you look at, at, at how they source uh, their clothing, they will, they will have sections that you can look at, and you can actually tell quite a bit from those. They'll, for example, if you go to Nike right now, Nike will reveal the location of every single factory that produces Nike shoes around the world. Um, if you go to Walmart and try to find the same thing, you will not find the same thing. Um, so so you, can, you can do a little bit of sleuthing on your own, but obviously it's pretty labor-intensive. And, and I do think, I, I don't want to dismiss consumer efforts to, to, uh, to be aware of this sort of thing because it's done a lot of good, but I, it, it is it is too bad that it's purely in the private sector and, and, and really Washington uh, does have a role to play in this sort of thing and, uh, and we've become awfully resigned to it not really caring and just blithely pushing for uh, saving us all money as consumers. Uh, and, and it's a bias that, that probably is not really that helpful. I think a lot of us, if we were actually given the choice, well, I could pay a buck more for this shirt and it would be made under decent conditions, we'd pay the extra buck. Uh, it's just we're not getting the choice, and and, and when policymakers present the case, uh, they they just get in the in the trenches of uh, you're a protectionist or you're a free trader or, or you know you're outsourcing, giving tax breaks to companies that ship jobs overseas, and, and it's and it's kind of stale rhetoric, um, and and I wish that we would be presented with these choices, and I think if if people are active and, and actually indicate to Washington that they care, maybe maybe Washington will also start to care. Well, you know, T.A., I, I, know, I know we want to end this, uh, but, uh, and I don't mean to get overly political about this, but over the last 30 years or so, we have really consciously, not just in the garment industry, but throughout, want to have more deregulation. And what you're talking about would be a form of regulation and uh, we just haven't been ready for it as a country. Yeah, but this Wall Street uh, deal yeah. may have us. That's, uh, <laughs> we may be moving that way, and I think on that note, we have to wrap it up. Yes, nationalize the garment industry, yes. uh, <laughs> along with uh, the banks. So thank you all, and thanks especially to our panelists.